We really should get back in the habit of doing the the, the pre-recording. Yeah, we we need a we would need a good way to like share it with people. Yeah, like I I don't know. YouTube. Patreon is just yeah. YouTube. Well, yeah, I guess we could post the clips on YouTube. Actually, that, that's actually a good idea. We could just post it on YouTube. Yeah. So then you have to go check it out because it's like extra little bonus content. Exactly. Yeah. It's not a bad idea. Because the Patreon TikTok stuff clips. is like kind of, I mean, I don't know. We had some very loyal followers and fans on Patreon. They were awesome. Good times. Very fun times, especially like the hangouts, like the monthly hangouts. I remember we did a few of those. Those were fun. Yeah. It's funny. I'm like friends with some of the people in the monthly hangout now, like actual friends with them. Mm-hmm. You guys paid your way into becoming friends with me, and it actually worked. <laughs> <laughs> like people, I just like text it, with on a regular basis now. I met through that. <laughs> it is funny how that works, though. Like if you just put stuff out long enough, and it resonates with people, then they start replying more on Twitter, and then after a while, it's like you're just friends, right? <laughs> you're just talking. You know, yeah, that's pretty cool. What were those hangouts like? Like how many people would show yeah, up? Yeah, because you weren't a member of the Patreon. I was a member of the Patreon, actually. Oh, you were? He was. You just didn't join the monthly hangout. Check the receipts, man. I didn't even know about the hangouts. (laughs) Adil Adil actually paid for the most expensive tier where he became a co-host of the show. (laughs) Still paying. And if you you see him not on the show in the future, it's because his credit card stopped working. Yeah, actually, Adil, you got to update your credit card. I think it's about to turn. (laughs) That's why I miss an episode here and there. Oh, man. <laughs> See, uh, Adil, you got to finish that now that we're recording because uh, they're not paying for sponsorship yet. Yeah. So <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> we, can't, yeah. we can't give them any free publicity. Athletic <laughs> Greens AG1. Proud <laughs> non sponsor of me. Use code Adil for 0% off your order. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So hopefully we've alienated some people because the episode topic today is the courage to be disliked so (laughs) um yeah this actually i didn't think this title was accurate to what the book was actually about it didn't make any sense right no it's it's like a subsection of the book yeah (laughs) i which i thought was so strange i mean it's it's like one or two chapters in the like last quarter uh, I mean, it, it is part of the central theme. Like, I have this good quotation here. I, there were just other themes that were bigger themes, like the agency yes. thing or yeah. like, honestly, a great title for this book. Teleology. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe no one would, people might not have resonated with that. So it's probably the publisher it's was good like, marketing. yeah, it's, it's a great marketing title. Like I and I think that's sort of because if if they had titled this like Intro to Adlerian you know People psychology would, yeah. it would not have sold three million books <laughs> right right or you know what it's uh it, it kind of reminded me of what's the Mark Manson one the not the giving a art fuck of not giving a yeah, fuck yeah yeah it's like that kind of vibe yeah like. Read this to not care Although, what other people think initially, but that's that's not what the book is about. But like that's kind of what the yeah the sense of the book is like, like at least from the title, that's the sense you get. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because I guess all the other titles that could have gone with right, like happiness is the feeling of contribution, or like the secret to happiness, or like all of them, I think would have been worse. It's like the the best worst title they could have come up with given the scope of what this is covering. I mean, like really this would have basically been called like ethics, right? Like Mm -hmm. this would have been some philosopher's book that they publish and they just title it like on ethics or uh, like on happiness. Right. So this, this is a much better marketed, especially for a popular, popular book. Yeah. It covers a lot of ground. Yeah. And actually on that note, the other thing I was surprised about with the title, um, just before we move on from that is the, the whole Japanese angle to it. Yeah, I didn't quite. I mean, there's two Japanese authors, <laughs> I guess. Which yeah, but he's a German philosopher, right? <laughs> so yeah, because the subtitle is like the Japanese phenomenon. I forget. I don't have the book in front of me. Yeah, it's the Japanese phenomenon but. that shows you how to change your life and achieve real happiness. And then it's got like a little bit of like a Japanese style watercolor art on the cover, <laughs> and then both the authors are Japanese. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be like some, you know zen buddhism style like <laughs> influence and then right away it's like ah this is german dude that we love <laughs> we're gonna tell you about him <laughs> <laughs> and we're just japanese guys who love this german 
you know, philosopher. Exactly. So, yeah. I, I guess the one guy, uh, I think Fumatake is like, he's the reason or he's one of the reasons Adler became popular. So like, he popularized it. So I guess that's he popularized it because it, yeah, I think it's sort of this common thing where, you know, that people have these interesting ideas and they just like, can't communicate them because they're so, you know, in, in their, in their head isn't exactly the right term, but they like, they know it too well to explain it well to others. Right. Yeah. They're like too close to, sure to the is German to the topic. Yeah. Did Adler's own works ever like take off like this? I'm looking at some of his books and they're all from like the thirties and none of them are things I've heard of before. Like the pattern of life, guiding the child. I I'd never even heard of him before this book. Same, yeah. same. Yeah. So I guess, so, yeah, I, I think yeah. he, he's like directly just for context. Um, the thing that's, I think most interesting about like the central theme, I guess, of the book is, I guess, what's the right way to describe this? That trauma or past isn't, doesn't have to be the, or isn't really real in a way. I don't, I don't, know, I don't think, I don't know if that's I mean, the central theme. I don't think it's the central theme. Yeah. It's like agency, theme, like, right? Like, yeah, maximum agency. You, that's what I kind of was going to, right? So, like, the past doesn't control you in the way that I think we're, at least with Freudian psychology, kind of taught that, oh, you're doing this yeah. because your mom told you this when you're a kid or like whatever. Like, it's more that you, you know, you have agency over your life. Like, extreme ownership is even like the theme that comes to my mind as well that you bit, yeah. own your you own your life and your actions essentially so like you're you're choosing every day yeah yes. how to live and how to feel and who you want to be and like everything that you think is out of your control is actually something that you are choosing to serve some part of you whether you acknowledge it or not yeah like but, you have a goal like every action you're taking is serving your goal even if that goal isn't what you would consciously or i guess outwardly yeah, tell even if you don't think your, you have that goal yeah right yeah it's it is subtly pulling on the strings in some way. Yeah, it kind of reverses the cause and effect of Freudian psychology. Yeah, well, and I think it's it's an interesting book to read now, and interesting book to be popular now because I feel like it. You guys familiar with like Insta therapy and sort of just like the, the general it's rise like the TikTok videos and like the Instagram. Like, yeah. Like TikTok right? and Instagram mm-hmm. stuff all about like therapy and, you know, unpacking your trauma and kind of like there there's, there's the good of it of like, you know, helping people recognize, you know, bad things that might've been influencing their life. And then there's a lot of like bad to it, which a lot of therapists and psychologists criticize too, of like now everybody thinks they have all of this like trauma and all of these problems when, in some in some cases they're just like not taking responsibility for their lives right mm. like there i'll try to find there's this therapist on instagram who does a really good job of like criticizing insta therapy and like but like one of the things you know i've seen a post from her where she says like you know you're <laughs> like you're you're 32 uh if your parents didn't hug you enough like it's time to get over it and uh, like start taking control of your life, right? <laughs> like it's it's sort of to that effect, which I feel like this book kind of resonated with, in that sense of like, yes, bad things may have happened to you, but you choose how to interpret them and what you do with them. Yeah, because there's a there's definitely an element of to the insta therapy theme, and I guess how broadly uh, therapy is kind of viewed today as being like, oh, we'll unpack the reasons for why things are going the way they are but they're less constructive. Like they're more, they're much more about, okay, we'll pack the, unpack the reasons, but that doesn't necessarily help you fix. Like it doesn't go to the next level of like, how does it actually change the results of what you're getting right now? Last year I worked with someone who was like halfway between a therapist and a coach. So you start with a bit of like you unpack and then you're like, all right, like we're done unpacking now. And now we're going to like just strictly do things and it was phenomenal. And it was also, it wasn't open-ended. It was, I think it was like four months or something like that. Mm. So there was actually like a date in mind where we're like, all right, at this point, we're going to wrap this up and see how far we can get. And uh, I, I loved it because I, I do think the unpacking helps you direct the action. But then if you're unpacking the whole time, it's like, well, eventually you have to go and do something about this. Yeah. Uh, now, the, 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 there is some pendulum, I feel. Like when I talk to like my parents or folks of their generation where it's like you never unpack anything and then you just have this like cloud over your your whole life. And now it's like 
you're just unpacking every tiny little thing instead of doing anything at all. It, it almost reminds me of the uh, Will Durant, like everything is a pendulum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now it's just like swung completely the other way. And this book is entirely back in the other direction. Nat, I know you've read this. Neil, I don't know if you have. Have you Have you read the uh, the Harry Brown book, How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World? No. What's it, it about? Nat, you've, you've read this one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it basically it's good it, it it's reminds, fun it's another maximum agency book it's yeah, basically yeah. Just like there are only so many things that you can control and you can either spend your life fighting things you cannot control and being frustrated by it or you can like treat it as sort of like the course you have to navigate and then make full use of the tools you have and then completely ignore the ones that are not accessible to you and that's the path to finding happiness and it's just some guy who decided to write a book at the end of his life and it's beautiful. It's lovely. There's no pretensions about it being a philosophy, but it hits the same points of like maximum agency within the tools at your disposal. Interesting. Yeah. When was that written? Is that also in the same time frame, or is that older? Uh, no, I think it's from the 80s. Yeah, I was going to say 80s. It's good. It's a little bit like if Ayn Rand wrote a self-help book. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but nicer. But nicer, yeah. <laughs> Let, l- shorter speeches. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how, I mean, to your point about the pendulum, deal. I wonder how the, f- like, Freud point of view became so prevalent. Uh, because, like, this, uh, to me, that was always, like, how I kind of viewed therapy. Like, oh, we're gonna, they're going to unpack the reasons. And that's, like, the bit, you know, that's what therapy is. But then when you read it from this perspective, it's like, this actually is to your, like, your example, it's almost like if somebody was doing this the right way, it is almost like a coach. It's more of a coach than a therapist. It's just like, hey, it, but it, I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a little bit like maybe people are missing that understanding or that comfort. And that's where sort of the Freudian part comes in that, oh, I'll unpack the reasons and, and I'll be understood. But it's, it doesn't feel if that's where it stops right it doesn't feel productive to to the point where like you came to therapy to try to change something about your life mm-hmm. and so without that next step it, it seems almost like i don't know like just a reflection exercise not necessarily a change exercise I, I did find parts of this book to be like a little flippant like the section where he talks about lifestyles uh he's like oh well you weren't born with a lifestyle you chose a lifestyle and now you have a lifestyle if you're unhappy with it just choose another lifestyle i'm like well like it's not like i chose my first lifestyle it was like given to me as a product of my environment because i didn't have that agency at a particular point right and then i started choosing different pieces of it over time and i think for different people based on what you were taught by your parents or your teachers or whatever you have a sense of whether or not you even have that agency so unpacking that is valuable. And then once you hear, oh, you can choose this, then you have to like diligently apply it. The area where I thought the book was most interesting, though, was the unstated goals. Because oh, you can yeah. choose lifestyles, mm-hmm. but if you can't identify the goals that are like actually controlling your lifestyle, then you can't make any choices there. Yeah, I, I agree with the like bits of flippantness. There are definitely sections where it feels like he's saying, okay, the, if you're depressed, you just stop being sad. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> or yeah. there, you know, he, he has one, one piece in here and you know, it's kind of like, this is the nice thing about writing the book and not having a debate is that you don't have to always present the, like, uh, you don't always have to steal man your own arguments. Right. And so he, he has this thing about his dad where he says, if as long as I use ideology to think it is because he hit me that I have a bad relationship with my father, uh, it would be impossible for me to do anything about it. But if I can think I brought out the memory of being hit because I don't want my relationship with my father to get better, then I will be holding the card to repair relations. And it's like that that does work within a certain range of like things that could happen. But there's like a lot of stuff outside the range where it's like, you know, maybe it where it is just reasonable to be like, no, okay. I just don't like this person. (laughs) Right. Like there, there's, there's a limit to, uh, taking everything on yourself, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
at the end of the day, everyone develops their own philosophy and it's always like some intersection of a few things and hearing that you can have maximum agency, I think is powerful. Like I always yeah. think of like the time in my life where I read the Harry Brown book, which I think is the closest thing I've read to this was a time where I needed to read that book because then it gave me the sense of like, okay, these are the things I keep trying to control, but cannot. And I just need to stop doing that. Yeah. And that was like a, that was like around 2016 and I can like almost very clearly point to one of the things that led me to be so much happier after the other one from this book that I found was the framing of like all problems are interpersonal problems where mm. everything you experience is in context of other people. So a feeling of inferiority is because you're in a society, a feeling of superiority, a lack of meaning, a possession of meaning, happiness, frustration, uh, all of it is because you're in a society. So you have to like, or in a community, I forget the word he uses. So you have to reframe a, like the people you are around. And then he has his framework of like tasks of work, tasks of friendship, tasks of love. Yeah. And then decide how you want to attack each of those tasks. Yeah. And then the whole idea of separation of tasks, which was also interesting. Like who basically yeah, don't try to do somebody else's task for them. Yeah. 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 Cause I think that like does get, if you just think about different, different things in your life, like that's where kind of you can get into trouble with other people, like to the point of interpersonal problems that can cause one is you're stepping on somebody else's task. And that's when somebody feels like you're trying to control them or, you know, you are, I don't know, unjustly saying something like you're out of turn or saying something out of out of your like you're not in a place to say that that's because you're you're violating the separation of tasks even if you don't agree with some what someone is doing it's not your task essentially yeah yeah i don't know about you guys but like i definitely feel that when i feel like somebody is putting their task onto me or trying to decide like what i do that's probably the thing that i react to most <laughs> strongly and most negatively same <laughs> right yeah it it actually does like that is what i think creates a lot of anger is if somebody's yeah. trying to do that whether that's in a work well, scenario or personal scenario <laughs> like there's that that is very it's almost like insulting in a way when somebody tries to do that it's like violating your it's violating your agency totally i uh i, I actually found a lot of this book was really good as parenting advice too. Mm. So kind of on, on this topic, the idea of tasks, like I think I don't remember, man, I wish I could remember which book I read this in because it was such a great line, but it was like, uh, the job of a child is not to get grades or win sports competitions. The job of a child is to be a child. Mm. And, is like th- this is a really good example of that where i feel like a lot of child parent conflict comes from parents trying to like force kids to do these other jobs that they don't care about and are not interested in doing and you know like and and i i definitely always felt that tension growing up right where it was like oh you're giving you're being given all these tasks that you don't care about and you're not you know you're, it's it's bad if you focus on the tasks you do care about Right. Like that, I think, really creates a lot of, you know, resentment with parents or teachers or whatever. And the other one that was really good that we haven't talked about too much is this idea of like gratitude versus praise. Mm. So this isn't something I noticed until we had Sutton, but a lot of people will say stuff like, oh, good girl or good job or, right. And we, we've started just correcting it whenever people do it. Right. If somebody says good girl, I'll be like, she's not a dog. Right. Like it, but it's, it's, it's really common for people to say stuff like that. Right. Like giving, giving that kind of praise. And I mean, aside from it being condescending, it's also kind of like, oh, your job is to perform for adults. Right. And like that, that's just not true. Right. That's not a kid's job. But it's hard to weed that out. And so calling that out as like for interacting with adults too. And trying to get in the habit of not saying like, oh, you did a great job on this or, oh, this was so good. But just saying like, thank you does actually feel like a way better way to communicate and show gratitude for things other people do. Yeah. The the parenting one is so difficult because you are both creating the environment. So you are necessarily doing some of the tasks and you have to carefully seed 
those tasks to the child over time. Yeah. Uh, the quote from the book, uh, a parent suffering over the relationship with his or her child will tend to think my child is my life. In other words, the parent is taking on the child's task as his or her own and is no longer able to think about anything but the child. When yeah. at last the parent notices it, the I is already gone from his or her life. No matter how much of the burden of a child's tasks one carries, the child is still an independent individual. Uh, and then later it says, um, the act of believing is a separation of tasks. You believe in your partner, that is your task, but how that person acts with regards to your expectation is their task. Yeah, and that goes back to what you can control and what you can't control. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, though. It man. is hard. I mean, <laughs> the kid one is the hardest is, one, right? Because The kid like, one's the definitely concept. the hardest. Yeah. Because it does feel like you have to do some sort of guiding and structuring. But I, I do like that it calls out... I mean, this has always been one of my favorite like lines or ideas that you could lead a horse to water, but you can't force him to drink, right? And like, I think that's just true for yeah. so much advice and knowledge and stuff in general, right? It's like if you have a friend who uh, who's like really unhealthy and you want to help them be healthier, right? Like you can't try to like force it on them or, you know, start giving them tons of books or start telling them like, oh, you should do this, this and this because they'll just like hate you, right? right? But you can like be a good example, right? Or you can just like try to do your thing and hope that maybe they'll, you know, ask for help or something eventually, right? Uh, yeah, but you can't make them. It's not Yeah, short. yeah, I think it's... I don't think anybody likes being forced or told to do things, right? It's like, it, there's another, this is another one too that I don't, this was like a big unlock when somebody pointed it out that nobody likes unsolicited feedback. Mm. And I think it's kind of an interesting thing because was this in, maybe it was in Finite and Infinite Games. It, it was in something where it's basically like part of how we show value in tribes is through knowledge. Oh, maybe this was King Warrior Magician Lover. I think mm. that's what it was, right? Yeah, like we've done there. One of the main ways you prove your value to a group is through the things that you know. And so we all have this instinct to share things that we know because it's like how we're showing that we're a valuable person to keep in somebody else's tribe. But if you're sharing things you know in a form of like unsolicited feedback, telling somebody to like do something differently that they didn't ask for, it it almost always goes over poorly, and you almost always think you're being good and helpful. So you have this mm. like really bad kind of like divergence where that person is liking you less, but you are thinking that they are liking you more, or that you are helping them, or that you are like being even better for them. Right. And they might even, they might even like react positively in the moment, but it often leaves this kind of like bad taste. It can be done perfectly. And I think if you're close enough to someone, it, you can do it right. But in a lot of cases, it just comes off weirdly. And he, he it's kind of like what he's talking about here, right? It's like, you can, you can show that you have the knowledge, but if you try to like push it onto people, that's when, they react negatively to it. There are uh, some situations like I, I'm thinking about this more from like a, a work perspective where if yeah. you've created a culture, I think where, and this is, you know, it, this is obviously it's never perfect in a culture, but if you've created a culture where it's like acceptable to push people, then uh, I feel like that kind of feedback could be taken better where it's like, you've kind of, you almost have to get the pre opt-in of everybody that, any of this feedback is not personal. It's always, it's like in the service of the goal, but it is a needle that you have to thread. It's not a, it's not an easy thing. It's hard to give somebody, it's hard to give criticism in a way that isn't going to come across as personal. And it's really hard to take criticism in a way that's hard, you know, that's not personal, but I mean, I've, I've actually seen this work better probably in a work scenario than a personal scenario. You can definitely establish those relationships. I think I'm more I'm more talking about like the offhand yes. yeah. situations, right? Like you know you're you're out to dinner with another couple and you order something and somebody goes like, oh, you know that dressing is really unhealthy or yeah. something, right? It's <laughs> that like, never okay, works. Well, I didn't well. fucking ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
or like somebody orders like i don't know somebody orders something that has like like oh yeah the worst is like if you're at dinner and one person is like vegan and you order meat and they're like have yeah you seen, like this oh. documentary or whatever or, or seafood <laughs> yeah. or whatever right it's like have you seen what is that one seaspiracy or something like that there's one oh about yeah seaspiracy yeah, yeah 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 the one up you're like oh my god i know i know i don't need to hear this <laughs> I, I about posted, my salmon <laughs> i posted this uh <laughs> like this set of pictures on instagram the other week of a dinner that my friend put on that was like all wild game and berries and vegetables like foraged in central texas oh yeah i saw that and that so cool it was awesome it was really good but most of the dishes were like meat based and somebody commented and his name was like troy the vegan of course i uh, commented he was like great book recommendation for you pro it was called proteinaholic and he was like you know th- this book really opened my eyes proteinaholic and so i go check it out and it's like you know how our addiction to protein is like slowly killing us you know blah, oh blah, blah. it's like it's a vegan propaganda book uh i was just like man this is why nobody likes vegans like i was just <laughs> trying to Let's share a nice dinner yeah yeah, yeah. And he's like he, he's trying to pretend that he's being helpful or whatever it's like dude shut up nobody asked you troy yeah uh yeah, I mean, to be fair, the carnivore folks do this too, where it's like, oh, you ate a plant. Oh, yeah, I mean, you're gonna die. Uh, no. <laughs> no, nobody, nobody likes zealots. Yeah, I shared the mango, like dried mango picture on Twitter a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and I got a bunch of people also admitting they like it, and then I also got a handful of people being like, you know, that's basically candy, right? I'm like, yeah, I, I know. I know I'm not posting this because it's healthy. <laughs> I feel like it is though. It, I mean, it is candy. It's fiber. No, it's got vitamins. It's, it is. Right? I mean, it's, it's a little candy, bit better than candy. No, it is a little bit. I mean, the, and also the Costco one is like organic. There's no added sugar because there yeah. are a lot of added sugar dry fruits. So. There are ones with added sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this one's no no but added I, sugar. So it is actually a mango. It's just like yeah. the amount of mango you can eat is a ridiculous amount when it's dried. Like you could eat like. The equivalent of probably five. You could have like ten mangoes. (laughs) Did you post it in context of like, oh, this is supposed to be very healthy? No, I said I'm. I said I'm hope. My caption was I'm hopelessly addicted to these. Oh my god! (laughs) There are worse things to be addicted. Like I was bashing myself that I'm addicted to them, and then people were like, "Well, watch your blood sugar when you eat those. It's basically candy." That's the other thing is you can always perceive when someone's giving you the feedback as to whether it's well-intentioned or whether it's for their own good. Like I, there've been so many times in personal cases where people have given me unsolicited feedback. I, I usually don't mind because it, it feels sincere. Yeah. And then there's times you can just tell that someone wants leverage or they want to prove well, a point. Or to or be something. fair, to be fair to the people like Troy, the vegan and people who commented on my picture, Social media doesn't do a good job of conveying the tone. So it could... I mean, I'm not saying Troy was being like trying to actually be helpful. (laughs) But if like you were actually like friends with this person and he was like, oh, you should just check out this book. Like it might not be taken the same way if it wasn't on social media. I think to Adil's point too, it's like in those cases, they it is earnestly trying... Like it it is often that they're trying to be helpful because they do feel like they have discovered some secret truth or hidden knowledge that everybody else is unaware of. And they want to like share that with you. But yeah. It's still annoying. I know it's still annoying. <laughs> I mean, you're, like again, to be fair to the seaspiracy person, it's like, yeah, I guess, you know, it like to your point, yeah, the, the, they have figured out some truth about being like, wow, did you know like most fish that you buy is actually super bad for you? The, the documentary people are my favorite yeah. because documentaries aren't fact checked. I know. Like, you can make a documentary about <laughs> anything. What was the one? <laughs> like, wasn't there one that you bashed for a while? I forget what it was. This oh, was God. The- what was that one? It was with uh, Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> it was like the athletes. Uh... Yeah, there was definitely one that you had. Uh, it came up on several made you think episodes that that one was just so funny because like a couple of the big health bloggers like not necess- not like paleo keto whatever bloggers like general health bloggers posted like 20 page research reports of everything that it got wrong it was like every minute they either like made something up or misinterpreted something 
Was this uh, the end of medicine? No, no, it was game game breakers. It, it was oh, game changers. I think it's game changers. game changers. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, Nat, you know something that's funny is when I was in Austin a few weeks ago for like the day and a half, I was mm-hmm. at. I forget what it was called, but some co-working space and somebody who somebody who knew uh, a couple of our mutual friends, they they came in and they were talking and I found out this person was actually involved in the creation of Game Changers, but is not oh. a vegan anymore. And she was wow. like, yeah, she was like, well, I've That's added cool. like I've added like uh, some meat, very, you know, very sustainably sourced meat to my diet. But I noticed some bad effects from being fully vegan, so I wanted to add meat back in. Um, Notice some effects from uh, not getting all the nutrients in your diet. Yeah. That's strange. <laughs> <laughs> but at least they adjusted, right? It's like kind of interesting yeah, that totally. that person is who was so passionate about it. They were part of the creation of the documentary is no longer uh, fully vegan. I, I mean, to be fair to the vegan people, a lot of the like, if you do vegan right, it's probably still better than the standard American diet. In some ways, if you do, yeah, if you yeah, do yeah, it if right, you do it like really, really well, totally. Yeah, with a lot of like, whole foods like, and stuff, but yeah, not. I think the way most hardcore elimination. Do. I think hardcore elimination diets are also like really useful for figuring out what you're sensitive exactly. to. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like there, there's a. I think there's probably a lot of utility to doing vegan for a month and then doing like carnivore for a month. I mean, maybe not back to back because you'd have to adjust, right? But just like seeing, yeah, and then play around with what's in and out to figure out what you're sensitive to. Right. Yeah. Because that makes the effects of like mild gluten sensitivity or mild, you know, fish or certain pesticides or whatnot. Like, hmm? wasn't that like when you went gluten free for what was it, six weeks? Yeah. It was noticeable. I mean, I'll, I'll notice it now too if I have bad bread. Hmm. Right. Actually, oh, this is the really big unlock I've had recently is water. (laughs) Ever since we got the whole house filtration. If I drink regular Austin tap water, I immediately can tell. Really? Like my body's gotten so sensitive to the taste of it. Like I don't necessarily feel worse, but as soon as I sip it, I'm like, oh, this isn't good water. Like I shouldn't be drinking this. There's like some little part of my brain that's turned back on to notice it, which is fast. I didn't expect it to become like that noticeable, but you immediately pick up on it. Interesting. Compared to like state of nature, drinking from a stream or a spring, like have we just become more sensitive to water quality? No, I mean water, like industrial, the industrial water that we get in the U.S. is like pretty bad. Yeah, I mean because they're adding so many like so many treatment chemicals and shit at the plants to like sterilize it for consumption, and then you know re-adding whatever trace minerals and stuff. But then you know you've got all of the like birth control and other shit that gets into it still. How does birth control get into water? Uh, Because women pee it out. Yeah, dude. There's so many. Doesn't get filtered back out. Yeah, there's so many pharmaceuticals in in tap water because they're in like the small parts per billion too. Yeah, like I've actually never heard anyone but Alex Jones say this, so that's why. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's uh, a. Well, this is like the no injustice. Like the Alex Jones problem, right? Is like he's right. He does get things right. But the things he gets wrong are so are big wrong. and so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> um, there, in Justin's newsletter this week, he posted huh. a, a graphic from I forget where it's from, but I, I think it was in Nature, one of the one of the, the papers, talking about the legal limits of glyphosate in mm-hmm. Europe versus the U.S. And so, in the U.S., it was like seven hundred parts per billion. In Europe, it was like zero point one parts per billion is the legal limit in drinking water. Um, wow. And the amount on a standard conventionally grown GMO soybean in America is 11,000 parts per billion. <laughs> um, so it's absurd. Yeah, it's wild. And so, I mean, that's in the drinking water in a very high, at yeah. a very high you know level. And they, they've seen negative effects on fish and animal livers at as low as 10 parts per billion. So 700 wow. parts per billion in the drinking water is significant. Yeah. It does kind of feel like like you guys have read the stuff about lead in the air. Oh, before we yeah. Had unleaded gasoline. That whole right? toll booth experiment, mm-hmm. right? About like kids who grow up near. Uh, well, not not just that. I mean, that, that one's pretty interesting, too. I mean, like, was it New York or Chicago in the 70s? Or like, basically, they 
they were able to show that once we took lead out of the gasoline, crime and a lot of other things like went down dramatically because we were just like poisoning ourselves and like going crazy and having yeah. birth issues and all of that. Yeah. But nobody was able to look at an individual and say, oh, this person has you know subtle shifts from like moderate lead poisoning or whatever from the air. It kind of feels like we're going to have that with glyphosate too. Yeah, or it, it seems um, like we keep finding more and more ways that it's so bad for us. And everybody, I feel like there's this growing question of like, why are Americans like so much unhealthier than Europeans? And it's like, I mean, there are other things too, but that one feels like there's something about the pesticides that are really, I think, screwing with us. Yeah, there's um. And and it does affect behavior too. There was a in that same book. I'm not done with it yet, but uh, what your food ate. There's a whole chapter on glyphosate, and one of the the things they bring up was like they did an experiment on rats with uh, mm-hmm. glyphosate in their diet versus not in their diet, and the ones not in their diet were um, pretty tranquil. Like there was no abnormal violence, and the ones that did have it in their diet, by the end of the experiment, some of them were eating each other. Like Jesus. they were just, it, it seemed to like spur their appetite in some weird way. Like it made mm-hmm. them need more calories than, than the ones that didn't. Cause they were fed the same number of calories, both, both groups. Interesting. But it was just like the ones that were n- with it were kind of starving. Somebody would, somebody else needs to fact check yeah. this, but I think there's some stuff with like mild neurological disorders too, like autism and ADHD yeah. and other things. There seems to be. I, I saw something about this. I mean, you might know better, Neil or uh, Justin or Anthony would know. I'd have to look. Um, at, I mean, they would definitely know better. I'd have to look at my notes for this book. But if you look at those charts, awesome. if you look at those charts, those are wild charts, right? Like autism in children under five has gone from like one in 70 to one in, I want to say like five or six wow. in the last 50 years. It's something absurd. Wow. Like, okay. That number seems ridiculous. It can't be that high. <laughs> Autism rate change in America. Let's fact check this quickly. One, I see one in 36. One in 36. Okay. But boys are four times more likely than girls. All right. Yeah. That number was way off. Thank God we have the internet. I would say so much stupid stuff if I couldn't just fact check myself <laughs> recently. <laughs> uh, man. But let's see. Wait. So it says. I definitely heard higher than it's one still in tripled. 36 it, though. It, it says it's tripled over the last 16 years, though, to your point about the prevalence. Yeah. Um, okay, it was so that- 1 in 44 in 2018 and 1 in 150 in tw- 2000. And this is saying that in the 60s and 70s, it was 2 to 4 per 10,000. Yeah. So it was effectively ne- not negligible, but very, very low. Okay. So according to this, and this could just be a diagnosis a change in, I mean, I'm sure diagnosing has changed a lot, but this is saying it's gone from one in 5,000 to one in 50 from 1970. So, hmm. yeah, so 10x. From yeah, that. I'm sure so. But of partially, those. probably diagnosis and yeah. some on prevalence. Although it's also like, I, uh, any, anybody who is going to have a kid soon, it's like, don't don't go on parenting TikTok and Instagram. It's terrifying. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just you, you can literally find a video to tell you that any behavior means they have autism or ADHD or whatever, right? Like it's wild how like fear mongery it gets. Um but that's probably what gets engagement. Oh, totally, totally. Well, and have you heard of like uh have you guys read that article about the spoonies? Or do you know about this? No. No. Spoonies Spoonies are a like social media phenomenon of like mostly young women who have these kind of like collection of chronic diseases and they kind of like self-identify. And basically what the article is talking about and what these researchers are looking into is it seems that a lot of these chronic diseases are self-manifested from social media. So... Hmm. They they might have like, you know, a mild thing like some fatigue because, you know, they're not sleeping or whatever. And then they kind of like blow it up in their minds from getting all of these social media cues saying that like, oh, well, I actually have this like, you know, debilitating chronic disease. Uh, and they like have these communities and where you gain the way you gain status in the communities is by talking about like how bad your symptoms are and how uncurable they are. Like it's it's really wild. It 
I tried to find the article. It's like terrifying. But there's definitely, I've heard this term too, right? Like identity by disability. I think it is. Yeah. So this yeah. actually ties to the. This actually ties to the book. It does. Right? We brought like, it back. Let's I go. <laughs> we brought it all the way back. We brought it all the way back. But it's like it's like this idea. No, you're totally. I I've read that article, Nat. I don't know what it was called. I didn't know it was called Spoonie, Spoonies. That's what it was called. Yeah, yeah. The, the but, name of the community is. Uh, yeah, and I remember in that article they even talked about somebody who like got better and was like kicked out attacked. of the community or something. Yes. Yeah. Um. For that, so it's. Yeah, and so it kind of ties back to the book in the sense that you've made now this part of your identity, this trauma or this this thing that happened to you, part of your identity, and that's how you've created the sense of belonging. But yep. it doesn't have to be that. But once it's part of your identity, you're scared to let it go. Yeah, there's actually I think a lot of that in overall, just like how humans think. The article is called um, "Hurts So Good." It's on Barry Weiss's so newsletter. Good. Yeah. yeah. So. That's that sounds right. Yeah, but I think a lot of this is true for like in, another silly, uh, easy example is is like politics, where you just like if you identify as one of the parties, you just start believing all the ideas of that party, even if before you got into the party, you would have thought that idea is insane. Yeah, like you'd be like, oh, well, I'm a Republican, so I believe in this, we- even though you might not have believed in that from a you know first principles perspective but we did we did elephant in the brain we didn't do crony beliefs as its own podcast right no uh, okay. we did elephant that, in the brain yeah crony beliefs I mean, that's, that's just one. like the best article ever great and one. anybody who's listening who hasn't yeah. read that article has to go read it because it, it explains so much in group behavior <laughs> like that is such a huge mental mo- and i i like hate the like mental model memes but that is an incredible like mental model to have for interpreting <laughs> the world <laughs> It's good lens on yourself. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the gist is like, we often believe things in order to stay part of a group, even if we know that those things are questionable. And the way you can tell if a belief is crony versus based on reason, evidence, the things you hope your beliefs are based on is if you react negatively to that belief being challenged, right? So I, I love the example he gives where he says, uh, if somebody tells you like, hey, don't you need to pick up your kid from soccer practice? Right, You're not going to get pissed at them. You're going to be like, oh, shit. Yeah, I, I do. Or, oh, no, I don't actually. Like, not at soccer practice. Right? It's going to be a very binary response. You're not emotionally attached to you're it. You're not emotionally attached to it. Yeah. yeah. But if somebody comes up and says like, you know, oh, uh, you know, whatever thing, whatever sacred cow of yours that you... Uh, don't want attacked, you know, oh, meat is actually terrible for you, Mr. Carnivore, right? Then you might react super emotionally to it. Exactly. Tony, uh, we should do that one. Troy. We should do that one. <laughs> I think like we should do it the next time we have like a long book that we're yeah, in the middle of. Yeah. Like that's a good article one to break it up. That's a good article one to break it up. Uh, what else should we talk we about from the book? Adil, I know you've got a, a stop. Um, yeah, uh, I think the the of equal worth, not equal ability, was an interesting one. It's kind of like the equ- equality of opportunity, mm-hmm. not equality of outcome. Because he was talking about jealousy, essentially, or I guess seeing other people uh, achieving things and not feeling happy about it, feeling almost mm-hmm. attacked when other people were achieving things. And so, yeah. yeah. So it was, it, he didn't call it equality of opportunity, right? What did he call it? Equal, e- people are of equal worth, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that it doesn't mean you're worth more or less innately as a human, but it is. But you're not guaranteed equality of outcome by any means. I also thought that on a related note, this book was pretty, like had a pretty favorable view of ambition, which I think yeah. in some philosophies and psychology ways of looking at things it's almost like looked down upon to be ambitious i like how it frames I, was, also, I like how it frames ambition because it makes it really clear that you shouldn't be seeking recognition right yes there, there's this great line let's see i'll find it people who are obsessed with the desire for recognition will seem to be looking at others while they are actually looking only at themselves right so they're just like obsessed with their status in the eyes of others but framing ambition as a means of contribution, I feel like is pretty powerful because that, that's sort of how he ends, right? As he says that the, the definition of happiness is the feeling of contribution, 
right? If you can contribute to others, you will be happy. And so by being ambitious, you can contribute to more people. He doesn't say it explicitly like that, but that is kind of the vibe that I get. It's a very humanist book. Yeah. Because he also, when he talks about the community, he's not talking about the community you contribute to. It's not just like your neighborhood or your family. It's like the collective of all of humanity. And I I don't know how, I don't personally find that quite as easy to relate to because it's so much easier to be like, yeah, like, you know, I love Nat and Neil or like my family or these like very tight bonds. Yeah. And then trying to extrapolate that level of emotion to like the whole species, I think is a little lossy, at least for yeah. me. I don't know if you guys same, feel that same. way. Yeah, same. But it's a very humanist approach in that sense. Uh, that's the gift that you owe it to this community. Should we talk about the title? We talked about how it has nothing to do with the rest of the book. And then we covered the whole book and never got to the title. <laughs> yeah, let's, talk yeah about, let's talk about it. Let's talk about that idea quickly. And there's one other idea that I want to talk about from the book in the eight minutes that we have. So Adil, go first. Yeah, let's do it. The, the This was also the piece that reminded me most of how I found freedom in an unfree world by Harry Brown, because he defines freedom as, uh, or at least in this book, they define freedom as uh, if you are disliked, that means you are free yeah. because it is impossible to get everybody to like you. So if you are not disliked, which means everybody likes you, you have necessarily restricted your behavior in some fashion to earn that outcome. And thus you are not free. So the courage to be disliked is actually the price of being free. Yep. Which is actually a pretty powerful idea. Uh, it's like who dislikes you and over what? And those are the areas in which you have chosen not to comply. I love it's it. almost like a Taleb idea. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's like a very anti-fragile way of looking at things like, you know, the somebody who's a salaried employee, like in a position where they can't say anything, they're not really free, you know, and whose bills, I guess, equal their income and they have no savings. That person's not really free. The 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 person who's like his example in anti-fragile was as an author, like if he, what was it like punch somebody in the face, like yeah. it would actually help, his, help book his book sales, sales. right? Like. <laughs> Although, That's the concept of anti-fragile. Yeah. Taleb, Taleb seems uh, jailed by the opinions of people on Twitter. So he, he's created his I own know. prison. <laughs> I know. I know. But you can appreciate the idea. That's what I've been trying to do yeah. with him is like separate the ideas from the man. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't I can't see his yeah. tweets. You're anymore, blocked. So, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. From first episode of this podcast. I know. Like, I know. He was he was like the intellectual hero of this podcast. To literally he's blocked. Don't meet that, your heroes. So. <laughs> Don't be <laughs> should have shut the podcast down the day you got blocked. <laughs> another another Taleb level Twitter troll unblocked me recently. And I was actually offended. <laughs> I was Wait, I want to know who. <laughs> I'll, I want to know I'll who. I guess we're done recording. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think okay. it was because <laughs> during the whole like Musk takeover, they deactivated their account and then like, or I think they deleted their account and then made a new one. So they like lost their block list or something. <laughs> but yeah, then their tweets show, showed up in my feed. I was like, no, absolutely not. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the the oh, line that man. I love on this topic is... Uh, where he says, what should one do to not be disliked by anyone? There is only one answer. It is to constantly gauge other people's feelings while swearing loyalty to all of them. That idea of if you care about somebody liking or disliking you, you are swearing loyalty to them, I think is really powerful. Because, I mean, everybody does this, I think, right? You'll get a sense that like, oh, somebody doesn't like me or oh, maybe they don't like me as much as I wish they did. Or this random person on the internet you know, thinks I should eat some bullshit book about protein. I wish they liked me more. Right. And they realize like, well, actually I don't want to like swear loyalty to that person. Right. I don't want to go to bat for them. I don't actually care that much about them. So it's fine if they dislike me. (laughs) I also like that. I, I think you said it was like an old Jewish aphorism that out of 10 people, one one will dislike you, two will love you, and seven won't care about you, right? And that's kind of, I think that's like a healthy way to think about it, right? It's like for for all of your friends and people who care about you, like there probably are at least half of that number who just like dislike you and don't want to spend time with you. And then, but most people just don't care about you at all, right? Uh, and th- I think that's a healthy way to think about it. D- did that tweet about the queen yep. show up in your guys' Twitter feed this week? 
like it was going viral. No, it was like it. It started off as if it was going to be one of those viral like businessy threads, where it was like, you know, Queen Elizabeth II uh, ruled over, you know, led and ruled more people than almost any other monarch in history. Died one of the richest people in the world, right? Like, help more things like that. And you haven't thought about her once in the last six months. Like, you will die. No one will care. They will forget you. Go enjoy your life. <laughs> I was like, you're wow. right. I haven't thought about her at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure some people have, but yeah. Or uh, another good exercise is like uh, list off the names of all of your great grandparents. Right. That's scary. Actually, I, I I think I have two. Can't even get halfway. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like that's really crazy. Yeah. That's three generations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if you try to swear loyalty to everyone, like you just can't. Yeah, the way I think about that is it's either like you're going to make somebody unhappy. And if you make nobody else unhappy, you're just going to make yourself unhappy. Mm. So someone is going to be unhappy no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you might and you kind of owe it to yourself to not make yourself necessarily unhappy. I mean, maybe there's instances where that makes sense, but I, I've heard a version uh, but of you're going to make for yeah, telling somebody when up. they've upset you or when they're annoying you or whatever. Right. It's like if somebody does something that upsets you and you don't tell them. Like you are being unhappy for their bad action, right? Like mm. if you're not telling them because you don't want to hurt their feelings, you don't want to upset them or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Like they did the bad thing. If you shouldn't be the one to feel bad about it, like they should. Uh, and so you should tell them, right? And like allow that feeling to transfer from you back to them because they're the ones who created it in the first place. It's an interesting fine line between that and the unsolicited feedback. Yeah, mm-hmm striking that balance a when it comes to like pledging loyalty to yourself uh sunk actually gave me this idea i don't know if you guys well, i know nat you remember him i don't know i, Neil, I know if you guys yep. remember that around like meditating on like death mm. and like very vividly imagining your own and sort of like a deathbed scene kind of a thing and then it if you can really get into that mindset like really get deep in that meditation it does give you some sense of obviously imagined right you're really trying to pull something that's hopefully decades in the future into the present but uh it does give you some sense of that focus where you're like oh okay like this is this is stupid and i've tried it a few times especially when doing float tanks because you really just like it almost feels like you are kind of dead and dissociated and in the hour hour and a half you have in there you can get pretty pretty far yeah. with it is that worth doing i've never done that yeah, actually, Neil, it's pretty close to I know, where you I know. I've seen, I'll send you the way. Yeah, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've seen where that place is. Yeah. yeah. I, I really enjoy it. I mean, like high dose psychedelics are great for that too. You know, that that's the those studies on like giving the conversation before exactly the conversation before we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those studies on giving people in palliative care high dose mushrooms and their like how their mentality around death shifts afterwards are like wild. It's so effective. Yeah. It neat. almost makes you think that that should be standard hospice, like a standard hospice option. I think by the time Just we're all in hospice, it will be. Like, I mean, I hope I mean, it's I, not that long. Yeah. Or, or like, <laughs> it's become standard because the studies are so clear. It's like totally, yeah. It's like it's one. Of, I think some states do allow it now for hospice. Well, if it's hospice at home, you can do whatever the hell you want. Like, <laughs> yeah, you, know, if well, you're, you still if you're need to be able facility, to get it. Yeah, you'd have to be able to get. You it. You still need true. to be able to get it. Though. Yeah. That's the hard part. Use um, code as we've seen, think at checkout for twenty percent <laughs> off your psilocybin order. <laughs> Someday maybe. that would be a great sponsor. That would Replace great. your morning coffee. Yeah, with- <laughs> this is this is one of those like adverse uh, incentives where it's like you don't want to tell people about the company that delivers mushrooms nationally because if like too many people start using it, maybe they'll get shut oh, down. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, Oh yeah. So like I have this, I don't, you know, I, we have some feds listening to this show. Totally. So. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to tell people about my favorite restaurants in Austin publicly. Right. Because they keep getting overrun, not because of me, but because like the word gets out. Right. And then you like can't get a reservation anymore. <laughs> You're like, not because of me. Yeah, not because of <laughs> It me. could I'm be like, because of you with your TikTok account now. Maybe. I'm <laughs> become a food influencer <laughs> yeah <laughs> was there one other thing you wanted to get to Nat? there was but a deal do you have to hop i have to hop in uh, a couple minutes okay uh, I'll, I'll just say yeah. it really really quickly which was this idea that often when you think you can't do something 
it's just because you lack the courage to follow through on it. Like that as a mental model to like have in your back pocket, I think is really helpful. Like it, instead of inventing these things like, oh, I can't do it because X, Y, Z. It's like, well, it's really just that you're afraid to follow through on it. Uh, you know, you, you don't have the like fortitude that you need to take the next step. And that combined with one thing he says earlier, where he's talking about the the interviewee's friend who like wants to write a book, but like isn't ready yet or whatever. Uh, and he says yeah. like, well, he he doesn't want to start because it might go poorly. And as long as he doesn't start, he can continue to imagine that like, oh, if I just had the time, if I just had the resources, like then I could do it and it would be great and I would succeed. But really, he's just afraid of failure. And so he'll never start. And so it's more fun to just imagine this possible future than to actually take action on it. Like those two combined, I think, are very powerful tools for like motivating yourself to taking action on things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, I mean, a lot, I think we probably have all done it in some way, but it's, yeah, not going all in on something or not throwing yourself into something is a way of almost protecting your ego that you can, you can always pretend you could have done it if yeah. the situation was a little bit different. Pressfield talks about that in turning pro with like shadow careers, right? Where he says, you know, the example he uses writing, right? Where he's like a lot of aspiring novelists or whatever will take a job as a copywriter because they feel like, oh, they're not ready yet. And so they'll take this like less optimal version of the career, but they're really just like afraid of failure. And so they're taking on this like shadow career instead because uh, it's they would rather succeed at that. They would rather succeed at something they care about less than risk failing at the thing they care about most. Makes scary. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. What uh, book are we doing next? We're doing... I think Country Driving. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I forgot the title, but I'm reading it. I promise. I think it's... Yeah. Oh, I promise. Guys. <laughs> it's awesome. I haven't started yet, but I'll pick it up. Uh, I don't think it would make sense to do an episode on this, but uh, you have to read Shadow Divers. Anybody else listening? Shadow, Shadow Divers. Too. My, my friend Austin recommended it to me. It's a... It's a true story about these like deep wreck divers who found Ooh. the German U-boat off the coast of New Jersey. It's insane. It's so good. This seems like the exact type of like, yeah, the genre it even says is nonfiction history adventure. That's like the coolest. It's one of the coolest genres. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. Like, And it, it, it reads just added. It reads more fun and exciting than most fiction books. Like, yeah, it, it's awesome. Country driving has been good so far. I'm wow. like 20% of the way through it, Adil, and it's it, it's very well done. And I think it's just like, I, I have a surprising number of highlights for a book of that type. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Just to, uh, have you read despite it? Despite suggesting it, I I haven't started. It, so <laughs> well, you got a week. You got a week. <laughs> Glad to it hear is it's easy. Good. <laughs> it is easy reading, though. I will say it's not like um, it's not like a slow read at all or anything. It's it's pretty quick. Sweet. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I think it's four hundred ish pages, but it's not four hundred yeah. like dense pages. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's Sweet. it's pleasant and it's kind of entertaining because he's like, it's obviously written for a non Chinese audience. So mm-hmm. it talks a lot about like, well, at least the part so far is all about the roads and the driving culture and people reversing on the highway and like all sorts of interesting uh, things like that. So yeah, it's cool. I, I've enjoyed it so far. Cool. Cool. All right. Keep leaving reviews, people. Yeah. We love you. The reviews Thank have been great. Thank been you all. That. And send this episode to one person who you think might enjoy it. Send it to someone who... Well, okay. you think might not enjoy it, so you can be disliked. <laughs> no, <laughs> send, it, send it to somebody who doesn't have the courage to do something that they should be doing right now. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> it's like one of those things that's hard to like recommend to people, right? Like, yeah. I I had a friend ask if I was reading any good nonfiction right now, and I was like, "Oh, I'm reading this book. The courage to be disliked. It has some good ideas in it. I don't love the writing style, blah blah blah." And he was like, "I don't have any problems with that." <laughs> he's like i'm great at being disliked. i don't think that you have any problems with being disliked no I, I think i'm pretty comfortable with that yeah, too yeah it, it's pretty good with it it's interesting like cosette has started doing tiktok and instagram stuff and like her her video has been really really good and like some of them have you know taken off and gotten like hundreds of thousands of views of stuff and wow. it's it's interesting 
like, you know, it's an adjustment for her when somebody leaves like a negative comment, right? Because she isn't as used to it yet, which is like totally normal. And like, it, you know, it still affects me a little bit. But for me, it's so easy to be like, oh, you just delete it and like move on with your day. But I, I forget that that's like not a natural thing, right? Like it, it does take a while to get used to just random internet strangers taking out their like daily angst on you. Yeah, like your uh, birth rate decline TikTok Oh my video. god. The comments on that are wild. If anybody ever wants a trip, <laughs> it's so entertaining. These links, <laughs> yeah. The 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 birth rate decline video and the uh, alchemy of finance George Soros video. Both of those, oh, yeah, I bet that have was also incredible <laughs> comment sections. <laughs> I gotta get on TikTok oh. just to follow him. I don't even have TikTok. I don't follow him. I just wait for Nat to te- text me about which tell you when one some unhinged shit comments. happens. On yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm over here watching it like, yeah, spoost my engagement. Thank you. <laughs> uh, all right. I got to go, guys. Yep. Um, this was, this was good. good. See you guys good next week. This was fun. See you guys next week.